0: Welcome to Cybercast, decoding today's cyber issues. I'm Alexander Bolova, production lead at GovCIO Media and Research. And today, we're discussing the IT and cyber components of the ODNI strategic plan that was released earlier this month. With me today are managing editor, Ross Jumpertuni, and staff writer researcher, Anastasia Obis. Ross, Anastasia, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Alex. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence recently released its National Intelligence Strategy, which outlines four years of ODNI priorities. Today, we're going to discuss the tech side of this plan and what it means for the federal government. But before we get into the topic, Ross, Anastasia, I have a bit of a tech question for you. I am in the market for a new laptop. so. Mac or PC? Mac.
1: (laughs) Yeah, actually, when I started this job last month, I had to print out a few documents. I don't have a printer here at home. And so I went to the uh, library to print out a couple of things. And it was the first time I had used a Windows PC in, I would say, 10 years. I've used Macs almost exclusively uh, for a very long time. And in fact, I just got a new laptop a new MacBook uh, in December. So just that's, you know, eight months ago. But yeah, I've, I've been very much beholden to Apple for good or for ill. See, I'm at the
0: point where I have all of my keyboard shortcuts for editing just memorized in muscle memory, and I have never been able to understand the Apple shortcuts. What do you even have on there? An Apple button or
1: something? I would ask the same thing to a Windows keyboard. I, I have not used a Windows keyboard other than at the library, and so I was clicking all around with to the file print as opposed to the keyboard shortcuts and stuff. I don't want to get too deep on in, uh, in on this, but uh, yeah, you know depending on you know a lot of the stuff that you do, um I imagine can do on any type of machine. So you know whatever you're most comfortable with. but security wise, I know that's something that we talk about a lot. You know there is more uh, sort of security. On the Apple based thing, just because it's not as, not as widespread in use, you know, Windows is much more in use uh, throughout the world.
0: Wow, bringing up cybersecurity, it's like you read my mind. I was thinking of how to transition out of this topic, and you provided the perfect gateway, the ODNI National Intelligence Strategy. We know it came out earlier this month. I have not looked into it too much, so can you all? outline, some highlights for me? What do I need to know about this document?
2: Yeah, so basically, um, in the wake of 9-11, the director of national intelligence, he signed the first national intelligence strategy. Now, almost two decades later, during the Trump's administration, uh, we got the second strategy. And now it's the third strategy. And, you know, reading through it it really emphasizes how much the threat landscape has changed the concerns now revolve around just the impacts of climate change financial crises supply chain disruptions it's just it's a whole array of things you know like emerging disruptive technology advances cyber threats infectious diseases so just to Kind of give an example. Uh, the daily briefings for the president it used to revolve kind of around terrorism and uh, the Middle East. Now it really includes a whole range of topics. Just like I mentioned, the impacts of climate change, the cyber threats, the technological advances that China has been making in AI and quantum computing. And that's just to name a few. So um, anyway, this strategy, it's meant to guide 18 US intelligence agencies, including nine Department of Defense elements, like the NSA and the National uh, Reconnaissance Office. And the strategy lays out six goals. That's pretty much it. Uh, There is nothing else besides the six goals that will guide the intelligence community, basically.
0: Well, and I love a good list. So can we get those six goals?
2: So the first goal is positioning the intelligence community for intensifying strategic competition. And Ross, we will have to unpack that one. Uh, The second one is recruiting and retaining a talented and diverse workforce, something that we've covered extensively. The third one is delivering innovative solutions at scale, also something that we need to unpack a little bit, but we've covered it extensively as well. Uh, The fourth goal is diversifying and expanding partnerships, uh, which is actually something that I want to discuss with you, Ross, because now it's not just Looking at partnerships with foreign nations, it's also looking to expand partnerships with the private industry, academia, subject matter experts, et cetera, which requires a whole infrastructure. And it's going to be a complicated environment. So, the fifth goal is expanding the intelligence community's capabilities and expertise on transnational challenges. And the sixth goal is enhancing resilience.
0: All right. Thank you, Anastasia. There is a lot in those lists of goals to go over. So I'm going to throw it over to Ross to begin unpacking uh, some of the specifics of these.
1: Well, just to reiterate a little bit what Anastasia was saying, you know, this is this has been going on for a couple decades now. So there's not the changing world in that time is such that there's a lot of catch up to be done. You know, it's easy to think about this in terms of September 11th. This is something that this generation of leaders and to a lesser extent, uh, previous generation of leaders have been kind of working on, but you don't want to fight the proverbial last war in these things. So how do you anticipate, and the, the document has the word anticipate a lot, particularly with regards to China, as, as was alluded to before, but in general, how do you anticipate what... Rivals in the great power competition, China, Russia, to a lesser extent, allies like the EU, emerging powers like India, Brazil, and more you know adversarial relationships like Iran. How do you anticipate what they're going to do in this arena, particularly in the cyber arena? So the intensifying uh, strategic competition is that first portion of the first pillar making sure the intelligence community is indeed positioned for that. And it speaks to the rest of the document that there is this real interconnectivity to it. We should say it's a fairly short document because we're talking about the intelligence community, spies, covert stuff. They're not going to lay out all the cards on their table, particularly for the whole world to see, because that's fairly stupid and doesn't to talk about the pillar doesn't position the intelligence community particularly well. So to that end, as anastasia sort of noted, it's fairly broad. So it talks a lot about innovation, technology, but it doesn't speak in specifics. You don't hear words like zero trust or terms like zero trust or or anything like that. Even the word cloud isn't really in here in a way that you know we sort of think about when it comes to public sector innovation. So there's a lot of broad strokes, but more than anything, it talks about American values, democratic foundations, and making sure the U.S. continues its place within the great power competition. That's kind of the first pillar. I'll just run sort of quickly through some of the other ones in in so much as I can give sort of a top line on them. The workforce stuff, which is the second pillar, is something that we've talked a lot about on the previous CyberCast that that we were on because uh, the White House released its cyber workforce strategy. That's very much been a part of the White House. Their whole steez for the last three years uh, has been workforce diversity, all that stuff. And the intelligence community is very much wants to be on the forefront of that, presumably through an administration-wide plan. That pillar includes some—and we can get into this later—what I, in having covered this for a while, I have some doubts about it because of the way that it is positioned and worded about modernizing recruiting and hiring and vetting. I've covered the federal workforce for a long time, so I have some thoughts on how they would do that. But nonetheless, it, it fits within the whole of the administration and particularly the cyber workforce plan. Then we talk about the third pillar, the third goal, interoperable and innovative solutions at scale. Again, we're talking about a lot of agencies and we're talking about a lot of diverse agencies. So scaling things up means having something that works for everybody because ultimately you have these almost two dozen agencies. There's going to be a lot of differences and lack of interoperability. Again, something we've talked about, I know, on other episodes of the Cybercast. Data sharing matters, and it particularly matters in more forward-facing agencies, but you certainly don't want to have something that is in the wrong format going between things when really it's a high-stakes operation, as the IC generally is working within. Fourth is the partnerships notion, and this is something that I think is a little bit outside of what is fairly normal, and that it speaks to what Avril Haynes has talked about as far as the changing world in her introduction to the document, which is bringing in— New partners, you know, dealing with things that are slightly different, and therefore you need different expertise. The example I think about this in fairly recent memory, although it's not that recent, uh, was the Sony hack. You know, this was you know attached to state actors, and Sony's not the government. Sony is not. It's it's it is a company, a private industry, huge, employs a lot of people, but there's a lot of inner connectivity between the execution of that on the other side and then uh, the public sector and the intelligence community rooting things out and dealing with it and providing access and getting information and all the interconnectivity that happens when something like this uh, occurs. Solar Winds sort of comes the same way, although Solar Winds was much more tied to the U.S. government because of the nature of that particular action. But in general, those partnerships between private industry, between different levels of government, between non-state actors, between other governments, that remains a goal and and I imagine will be essentially until the end of time. Similarly, and this speaks to the interconnectivity of all these pillars and generally the IC's plan, expanding the capabilities and expertise on challenges across nations, that's the same issue. You have a lot of non-state actors who are fairly uh, malevolent when it comes to cybersecurity and when it comes to These espionage and statecraft and things like that, those lines can be blurred fairly easily. So, having those partnerships and expanding the intelligence community's capabilities is very much a part of it. And then the final one is, of course, resilience. As we've seen over the last four years, things like worldwide pandemics can be a major, major disruption. And resilience is exceptionally important when it comes to something as simple as getting secure lines to people in different places. You don't want to have to have somebody have a skiff of some sort of mobile in all corners of the world, and you certainly don't want to have technology be disrupted if you don't have some kind of duplicative uh, way to communicate. In general, it, it speaks to those, I'm sorry to keep going on about these pillars, but it does really speak to this interwoven notion of all these different agencies, all these different goals, and All the different sort of ways that these things are within one another, the physical world and the virtual world, they're not different anymore. And the IC has to do a better job of understanding that through its partners, through the people it works with, it really speaks to the connectivity of it all.
2: And just briefly add to that, the code that stood out to me was the community must overcome longstanding cultural, structural, bureaucratic, technical, and security challenges to reimagine and deliver the intelligence community workforce of the future. We have talked extensively on what that means to actually overcome those challenges. And the intelligence community always talks about how the strength lies in our people. and. It's going to be a lengthy, complicated process to put all of this together.
0: Yeah, and I think something that you were hitting on, Ross, is, you know, this is not an in-depth document at all, and it has a lot of ideas, important ideas and stuff that we've seen across the board, but there isn't a directive in really any capacity or at least not a specific one, which you know, we can expect from the intelligence community. But I guess my question is: Do we view this as enabling each agency to approach these issues in the way that's going to fit them best, or do we kind of flip it and say that there isn't a real clear direction provided? And if you don't have something solid to stand on, where are you going to actually change? Like, what's your opinion on that?
1: Well, when it The comparison I would make is to New Year's resolutions to a certain extent, but very vague ones. So if on January 1st you say to yourself, I am going to eat healthier but don't have any actual plan to do that, that strikes me as how a lot of this works. Now, for example, earlier this year, the Government Accountability Office had a report that specifically called out the intelligence community on how underdeveloped it is. When it comes to its information sharing environment, when it relates to counterterrorism, so this document, not shockingly, says we're going to centralize systems and we're going to scale up. You know, in the that pillar, the third pillar about scaling up solutions, it mentions some vague things but nothing specific. The most specific thing I would even say is procurement, um, centralized systems for procurement which is fairly vague, and automation tools. So if you're playing the drinking game where we mentioned AI, that would be number two, but it's not really anything specific. And some of that, again, is the nature of the intelligence community where it's taking from different agencies, different parts of the government. This is not something that is all hierarchical in one line. It's not vertically integrated. But nonetheless, You got to talk about how you're actually going to eat healthier instead of just saying, I'm going to eat healthily. That means one sticker bar instead of two. I mean, that doesn't really do anything.
2: Yeah. And just to kind of pull on that thread in terms of how are we going to eat healthier? So in terms of the information sharing challenge, and we could dive deeper into it, but that's a gigantic challenge for them as is, and now they want to bring the outside help to help with all these emerging threats like climate change, like financial crises, et cetera, et cetera. So the strategy doesn't say what it actually means to have a space where they can share the information, but we can read between the lines, which means that they will have to build the space that has the zero trust architecture. It will have to modernize systems just like j And we know how antiquated the system is. It will have to develop a really strong workforce to pull it all off.
0: So what it sounds like to me is that on the one hand, we have this strategy which has all the goals and we have, the practical tools that we know about that you can actually implement and what we really need to see is how we are connecting those two and my reading of this is that it's going to come from those partnerships to connect those goals to the tools but obviously there isn't anything specific like you have to partner with x it's being left to the discretion of the individual agencies but I mean, do you think partnerships are the key to getting these goals realized through the tools that we talk about every day?
1: I would generally say so. Again, th- these concerns are multinational and multi uh, stage. So, because of the disparate nature of that, there needs to be a lot of partnerships and a lot of eyes and ears on the grounds helping out as well as providing solutions. This is not new. This stuff isn't done in-house. And so the idea that, for example, a domestic terrorist threat in Illinois, let's say, because is my home state, there needs to be work between the intelligence community and the non-government organizations there, as well as the state, as well as whatever city is there. And putting systems in to do that means the software is not built in-house. Staffing is not necessarily always done in-house. There's, there are a lot of different layers here that do require partnerships up, down, left, right, and center?
2: I mean, I don't see how all of this can be pulled off without partnerships. Again, going back to living in a globalized world and... It's just the nature of threats that are emerging. There is no way that it can be handled without a vast network of partners that bring in their expertise, that share the information, um, that help identify the threats and help mitigate the threats and so on.
0: So the intelligence community just can't do it alone is what it comes down to. And you could say that for just the whole federal government and Keep saying it. These are things that we've said many times. And it does seem that when we get these documents, we get these memos, we are seeing those same goals reiterated. And I know it can seem a little frustrating to not have direct actions, but I haven't been working in this industry long enough to say this with complete confidence. So I need to be backed up. But I can't imagine five years ago that this was being. Talked about as often, as frequently, as necessary.
1: Well, that's something I know the intelligence community really needs to be proactive about because, you know, Anastasia talked about the post September 11th strategy. The US was, in a lot of ways, caught off guard in that sense. And the intelligence community was totally reorganized after that. It's been 22 years now, almost. The world's very different now. And so, just every few years, things do change and do need to be reevaluated. I don't want to act like the intelligence community is operating in a 2002 mindset because it's not. It is very much more than a lot of people give it credit for. It is much more nimble than other organizations of its size, type, you know, throughout the world. But You know, the famous phrase is you only need to be uh, wrong once when it comes to this world. The failure rate needs to be as close to zero as possible. And that means bringing in a lot of people. And that means getting the best systems in place to ensure the security of the people that they're serving.
2: Let me ask you both. I mean, I don't need to talk extensively about how much. 9-11 changed the country and the world. So do you think it's kind of uh, the crucial time where we need some sweeping actions to kind of address what's going on in the world?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a time of great change. I mean, with the technological changes that happened as a result of COVID, I think That really has served as an inspiration to reevaluate how we're approaching a lot of this. And so I do think that this is ultimately a good sign that we're getting another one of these strategies just four years after the last one. So obviously, we hope to see more clear cut answers to this. We might not because it's the intelligence community but it is a very positive sign that this is being prioritized. And I guess the only way to know if it's actually being implemented is to keep following GovCIO media and research. See how I put that plug in there? Anyways, um, shameless promotion aside, Ross, Anastasia, is there anything else that you would like to add?
1: Well, just I think that Avril Haines has been fairly out front about these things. She's been called to Congress many times. The intelligence community less so than other parts of the government have been under some fire about politicization, and I think the IC for the most part is is above that fray, but that doesn't mean she doesn't get dragged in front of Congress to defend the work. And she says a lot of stuff that's echoed here. Now, from the actual infrastructure and the cyber uh strategy and the technology strategy within it that goes less know, said because it is less uh, interesting on television because people don't care as much about you know network capabilities. Uh, that's not as sexy. but obviously that's what our audience cares about. and, and it's a vague document for sure. But there's a lot of opportunity here for partnerships and a lot of opportunities for the IC to do a better job and to bring in people who are uh, serving the mission all throughout layers of government, private industry and the nonprofit sector. Yeah,
0: opportunity is definitely the key word here. Well, thank you, Ross and Anastasia. For more insight and deep analysis on everything federal IT, make sure you subscribe to CyberCast on the podcast platform of your choice. And if you like what you heard, please leave a review and a five-star rating as well. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. But until then, I'm Alexander Bolova. I'm John Fortuna.
2: And I'm Anastasia Obis.
0: Thank you for listening. CyberCast, along with GovCast and HealthCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, Contact us at newsletter at govcio.com.